As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman. This is about the slowest time of the year, I think, if you cover college football. You're really hurting for content in mid to late June, Bruce, to the point where I, I uh, like, the, the kind of tweets that get that go viral right now are so such a stretch. A writer in Atlanta tweeted that because Clemson lost to Syracuse two years ago and and had a close win the year before the next year that he doubts how they would do against an SEC schedule. Like we're really, well, that's where, that's where we're going right now. Look, and, and that's a, that's a ripe topic because it gets people fired up and it, and there's no answer to it. I mean, there's an answer. It's not, but you're never going to be right. You're never going to be wrong. You know, I mean, the reality is nobody has whipped Alabama the way Clemson just did. And they've done really well against them in the last two times they played. So, I don't know. What are you going to say? I mean, I think one of our colleagues at The Athletic kind of shot back with their, with their own kind of answer about about how little you can read into some of those kinds of things where it's a head-to-head and whatnot. I mean, look, at one point, Hugh Freeze was holding his own with Ole Miss uh, against Alabama, too. I mean, if it were one game, one time, maybe you would feel that way, but they've played each other four years in a row. Clearly, at this point, Clemson has as good of players and as good of coaching as Alabama does. So my answer would be if they played an SEC schedule, they would have the same record that Alabama has against an SEC schedule. I would say that. I wouldn't say that they would have. The, I think what you said is probably a little different than would they have the same record they do in the ACC. And to me, that's a little different because I don't think anybody short of an ACC coach or maybe an ACC diehard fan would argue that the SEC is tougher than the than the ACC. Clemson is as good as anybody in the country, no doubt, but the rest of it is not there. But Clemson in the last four years in conference, you know what their record is? Uh, and how many the last four years? I think they've maybe lost two conference games. Yes, they are 30-2. and two. Okay, but guess what? That's the exact same record Alabama had in the SEC during that time. So, yes, there will definitely be a tougher schedule than what they face in the ACC. They won't be winning by 50 every week, but I don't know why they would do any worse than Alabama does since they basically have 
the same level of program. I would say that maybe they'll have fewer blowouts, but yes, you know, Alabama is rolling through some really good teams too. So. I just find it amusing. I mean, you know, at the start of this decade, it was always well, if Boise State played in the SEC, right? They wouldn't be going. And then that that topic, I understood. I don't know about Clemson. Yeah, and especially it's not like anything that was anything fluky about what Clemson did to Alabama, right? You know, it wasn't like a close game. It would turn out to be a blowout. So, again, I think, it, as you said, it didn't happen one time. I think what they're doing, clearly they're recruiting on, a, on on that level now, and it seems like it's only gotten more impressive as they've gotten more momentum. So, What else interests you around the sport right now? You know, Stu, we're on kind of an interesting window where you said it's, it's that lull, but we're not far off. I mean, media days are basically two weeks away now or three yep. weeks away. So. I think we're at that point where now, and just just in terms of as a writer, where whatever stories you've gathered up, you better you better have them written because that window is closing. So uh, I think it's an ex- I think it's an exciting time of the year. I mean, for for me on the TV side, we got our first three weeks of assignments, and so I already started game prep, and I'm excited about that. I mean, it's just like it's now it's very real where. You know, we spend all this time in the offseason on speculation, and now all of a sudden we have actual games to get ready for. Are you allowed to say what games you have? I think so. Yeah, um, why not? They're on the schedule. Yeah, so our, our first game is going to, well, we have a double week one. So we have South Dakota State-Minnesota Thursday night game, and then South Dakota State's been really good, and obviously P.J. Fleck had the Gophers on the upswing, and then we have your alma mater coming to your backyard, and a match. It's a great quarterback matchup. The Hunter Johnson era is begun, and KJ Costello, I think, is one of the best quarterbacks in the country over at Stanford. So, I understand you'll be tailgating from Friday morning on. We've already addressed this. Yes, I know. As I think I said in a tweet, uh, there's a bunch of we're going to see a bunch of really good quarterbacks in the first month of the season, and two of them week one in uh in palo alto so let me ask you something for south dakota state minnesota right most of the interest in that game is going to be about minnesota and pj fleck but you can't ignore the other team how do you get up to speed on a program on a team like south dakota state this is an interesting one because i feel like i should end up more versed in this fcs team than probably any any other one I could think of, just because from years of going to the football coaches convention, there's a former Wisconsin O lineman who I've known for years, and uh, he is now their offensive coordinator. And the the Josh Gaddis story I had done a couple of weeks ago for the Athletic on the new Michigan offensive coordinator, one of his proteges is their receivers coach Robert Arnheim. So this is the benefit of just kind of networking a lot and getting to know people so i feel like i've already got some good intel on the jackrabbits and much in this you know like our crew did a double two years ago where it was tulsa oklahoma state thursday night and then utep ou saturday and one of the things i gotta admit that was challenging is because you're kind of preparing for both games at once and it's not the ou piece and the oklahoma state piece those are the easy ones it's the other ones who Quite honestly, they're programs you don't spend a lot of time watching during the regular season. You know, the other, you know, and those are week one. So it's, you know, you're trying to piece together what it's going to look like. And aside from Will Hernandez, who was like, uh, who was an All-American guard for UTEP, there wasn't a lot of big name recognition that I think most people would have with those programs. So it was keeping them, you know, separate in your head. 
Whereas in this case, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be that way because it's not like I'm preparing for two FCS, you know, game, you know, teams. So I think it should be a little more manageable in that regard than, you know, I, I, what I remembered with the going into the middle of that week was there was there was a linebacker who was a pretty good player for Tulsa. And I was like, wait, is he on UTEP or something? You know, he's, it's sometimes it starts to blur together. You catch yourself because those are guys you're really finding out about the week before from talking to coaches and just just keeping some of that straight can be a little bit a little bit challenging as you kind of get into get into doing all that that's in part one of the things that really you know we had holly roll on the podcast uh last week and that's one of the things that really really you know wows me about what she was doing with doing all these other sports and you know juggling it all all at the same time and and when it comes to live tv that's not that easy to do holly by the way that was probably one of the most well-received interviews we've ever had on the podcast she was she was a tremendous guest but as long as we're on the topic of sideline reporting, I'll just go ahead and go to this mailbag question we got from Scott Saxton, regular reader, listener from Windsor, Windsor, Ontario. Bruce, how much information gathered during pregame prep or in-game do you actually hold back and don't share? What kind of information and why? Trick plays, formations, injuries, surprise starters, team dysfunction? Uh, when he says hold back, he means until the broadcast starts, I assume. Sounds like, sounds like, yeah, stu- yeah during pregame prep. No, he says during pregame prep or in game. So, things you know, but you hold back sharing. Um, well, let me because I'm when it comes to the to the to the pregame prep. Like, if there's going to be a trick play that they're going to run, and if you have a good source on one of the teams who tips you off about that, we will. I'll tell our crew when you know if it's going to be just to keep an eye on it because and that that actually happened with us not last year, but the year before where we knew in a certain situation, a team was going to run a specific trick play. And fortunately our, you know, we were ready for it. And so the, you know, I told our, our announcers and our producer and the director, so they can, the camera situation can be right. And we're not caught off guard. And they're not going to tip anything like this is to a lesser degree last year in our opener at Maryland against Texas, the Maryland staff had told us they were going to take a penalty because of the, the Jordan McNair tragedy. They were going to, I think they were going to line up with four offensive linemen and have uh, Jordan's spot not filled. And so I think that was what it was going to be. It was like a procedure penalty or I forgot what the, what the flag was initially for, but you know, we waited till the play happened. There was no reason to just to tip it off until it happened but just so we would be ready for the the broadcast piece of it so we can just kind of show the viewer what, what's going on. And with a lot of times, though, you got to pick your spots on what you know. I mean, I think the other part of his question is there's a lot of backstory of what coaches will tell you to be really honest. And they, you know, we appreciate them in candor, in candor but you want to be respectful of that as well. And so... It depends on the coaching staff on how much of that stuff you get, but there are certain guys who are brutally honest and maybe, you know, it's all for really context of why things happen, but you're not really maybe filling in all the blanks because you don't want to either embarrass somebody or anything like that. But I would say that's probably, you know, could be 20% of the time. I think one of the questions that some people, sometimes people ask about silent reporters is how much stuff do you prepare for the game and how much of that stuff actually gets on the broadcast? And I don't think that's necessarily what he's asking. I think he's asking about the background information. And I would say, you know, that can be anywhere from from 20% you're holding off to maybe 
maybe, you know, maybe 40%. You know, that's just, I think there's just a lot that goes into putting on, putting on a, you know, a three and a half hour game and our meetings, you know, you're meeting with the team, you're at practice. I mean, there's just a lot of intel you're gathering. All right, Stu, as always, we, we welcome and appreciate all our listener feedback and all the great questions, which we've gotten so many of. It's hard to keep them all in one podcast. But again, keep them coming to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Stu, I'm going to ask, I'm going to tee you up on the next your, one. Your you. struggles with that email address are like when I went almost a year with feeling uncomfortable trying to pronounce Tonga Vailoa on the air. Like I would always get there and then stop and hesitate. What am I going to mess this up? So I'm glad we both conquered our fears. Yes. Look, and I'm sure you're glad Robert Kemdichi no longer plays in college football. Yeah, but my next, the next one is going to be the, uh, I haven't even attempted this one yet, the uh, quarterback who's going to Clemson. You know what? I'm going to help you out off the podcast in a little bit because his uncle had sent me a phonetic reading of that name. And so I think that will be a great resource not just for you, but also for the rest of our College colleagues. Football, <clears throat> yes. Fans and so officially the name is Uianglale. 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 There's two yes. it's like there's like two L's back to back, it sounds like. Lale, yeah. Okay. Um Okay. So let's get back to the mailbag. Stu, this question is from John in Virginia. Students love the pod. Recently, there has been some speculation that this may be legendary defense coordinator Bud Foster's last year at Virginia Tech. His contract expires after the season, and there hasn't been much information coming from the school on the progress of contract talks. With Bud potentially retiring or moving to another school, God forbid, he says, this has me thinking about his worthiness in the Hall of Fame. However, the criteria for coaches is that they must be a head coach for 10 years. This brings me to my question. Would you change the criteria to allow for assistant coaches into the College Football Hall of Fame? And if so, which coordinators, past or present, would you elect to the Hall of Fame? First of all, I absolutely would change the criteria because there are a lot of great coaches who have an amazing impact on the sport who don't become head coaches for whatever reason. I mean, it's not, it's not, not even necessarily like they got passed over. They just really like being a defensive coordinator. Such as? Mickey Andrews. Okay. Do you think Mickey Andrews and the impact he had on the Bobby Bowden dynasty would be deserving of being in the College Football Hall of Fame? That's a great question. That is a great question. Look, under that category, I would say Bud Foster is also very deserving. Absolutely. The the part that's tricky here, and first of all, I think this is a two-pronged question. I absolutely think they need to change the criteria. The fact that, and I've argued this before, and several other folks have too, Howard Schnellenberger deserves to be in the College Football Hall of Fame. You know, the fact that he he had a startup program at at FAU, Miami football would never won one national title, much less five, if he hadn't been there when he was, and also worked wonders at Louisville. But because of a certain record, which I think they've, they've grandfathered, shoehorned a couple other exceptions in because of some political reasons connected to the, to the football foundation event. I think that looks kind of dubious. So on that front, I would say they need to change the criteria. The tricky part to me on this is you look at the list of players who are not in, and you're like, wait a minute, this guy's not in. He should have been in 10 years ago. You know, and I, we've talked about how 
the cycle of college careers happen so much faster than, let's say, any other Hall of Fame. Because if you have two great college years, you move on and a school can a team school can have another great worthy player come right on the heels of that, which is it just doesn't work like that in professional sports to have such short shelf lives. But when you start getting into assistance, I mean, I think you would get you get quite a backlog of guys who would fit into that category, I would think. But maybe I'm mistaken, and maybe there are some special exemptions exemptions like a Bud Foster. I mean, look, I, there's a defensive coordinator now in Bud Foster's conference that I think is is starting to put together a Hall of Fame resume. He may never be a head coach. You know what I'm talking about? I do not. Yes, you do. You're just forgetting the obvious one. It's Brent Venables. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely on his on the way there. I guess it just comes down to... Uh, I've always been uh, one who thinks, why do why any of these Hall of Fames have to be so restrictive? Like, the argument that... And I'm not really a baseball fan. I'm not a baseball fan. But the, the amount of time that baseball writers and fans spend debating who or should or shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, and they end up denying, you know, end up leaving out the guys who had amazing careers but didn't meet this, like, arbitrary, unofficial criteria cutoff of what constitutes Hall of Fame. Just put them all in there. Like, why does there have to be a limit? Do you think then it cheapens the the merits of having the Hall of Fame, though? I don't. Don't you think that? At the end of the day, the Hall of Fame is a museum. Like, what are we we talking about here? We're not picking, like, who gets to go to Heaven's Gates. Like, it's it's a museum that people go and visit. So what's the... Why shouldn't they get to see um, Howard Schnellenberger's plaque in there or whoever? You know, it's... uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not as, uh, I'm not as hung up on this. Okay. Any other names? I mean, the Mickey Andrews. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Have you, I don't know if you've ever been there. Has a whole wing dedicated to one-hit wonders. Uh, okay. Like, yeah, people who had one hit song and were never heard from again. But they're in the Hall of Fame because that's a big part of music. So why shouldn't uh, a, a, a guy who um, was a dominant defensive coordinator for two decades be in the College Football Hall of Fame? Okay. So, so. Brent Venables now has three national title rings. You think he should be a Hall of Famer? Yeah, why not? That's an interesting one. It's, I mean, harder, it's harder to do that one. In, in, I think it's harder to assess people's candidacy while they're still in the midst of their career. I don't know. I mean, look, he's, he's 48 years old. I mean, he's at his prime, but I think he would certainly have a strong argument now. Yeah, he's on, he's he's on his way there. But he could co- he could coach for another twenty twenty five years for all we know. He could, and look, I think that's the that's the part that you know whether it's Bud Foster. I mean, I, I don't who else would fit in some of these categories. The offensive guys almost always go on and get promoted up into head coaching jobs. The what, defensive guys, yeah. Well, I, know, I just thought of something. Okay, let's say Brett Venables next year. Let's say he wins another national title this year, another dominant defense, and then the next year he becomes the head coach at wherever, and. Turns out he wasn't meant to be a head coach. He flames out after four or five years. Does that then diminish everything before it, and he can't go in the Hall of Fame? Uh, by the criteria now, yes, that would diminish it in their eyes. Yes. I don't think you or I would look at that. I mean, who else besides Brent Venables would you say, and you mentioned Mickey Andrews, would, would be guys who you think could kind of fit in this? I mean, Don Brown's been a head coach. I don't, I'm, I'm thinking of guys who have had Well, he said they have runs. to have been head coaches for 10 years to even be qualified. Well, yeah, but if you're head coach for 10 years, you still have to have, you know, won a certain number of games to be in there. I mean, you're going in as, as the head coach who won, not as, not as, um, 
you know, this, this great assistant. All right, here's a figure from the past we can debate, okay? Okay. Emery Villard. He did become a head coach at Texas A&M and Mississippi State. He did coach for at least 10 years. But nothing about his head coaching tenure would say he should be in the Hall of Fame. He actually went uh, 37 and 42 at Mississippi State. However, he invented the wishbone when he was still, the off- still an offensive coordinator. So it seems to me that the guy who invented the wishbone should probably have a place in the College Football Hall of Fame. Yes, I agree with that. I have one who has a pretty big resume. Now, I'm going to be, I would be perfectly honest, and I am biased on this one because he, he's my neighbor, and I see him at the grocery store a ridiculous amount of time in the offseason. Norm Chow. Norm Chow should be in the College Football Hall of Fame. These are the players that he has coached, uh, some of them. Obviously, our buddy Matt Leiner, Carson Palmer helped turn his career at USC, Ty Detmer, Philip Rivers, and that just begins to get into some of the guys he had at BYU. It's a pretty impressive group. Yeah, and of course, he finally did eventually become a head coach at Hawaii. It did not go well. He is never going to be in the Hall of Fame for that, but I think he had a Hall of Fame career as an OC. I would agree with that. So I guess in a long answer to what, uh, to what John from Virginia said, yeah, I think we both would like it. I'm not as... I'm not as big a fan as the way you framed it as, hey, let's just let, you know, let's swing the doors wide open. Because I do think that, you know, it should it should be somewhat rigid. Yeah, I'm not saying you should put in any head coach that finished above 500. There still should be distinguished people. But these these very rigid restrictions on how you even become eligible in the first place is, I guess, what I'm referring to. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Next up. Hi, Stu and Bruce. This is from Sam and Adam Engelbert in Tempe, Arizona. With the Toronto Raptors winning their first ever NBA title, who do you think will be the next college football team to accomplish this feat? In order to narrow down from the hundreds of champions based on several different selectors over the years, for argument's sake, let's say the list begins in 1965, the first season in which the AP compiled post-bowl season rankings and selected Alabama as the champion. Texas A&M and Oregon come to mind immediately, but do you think anyone else has a better chance to be a first-time national champion? This is a tough question because I started to think about things on the periphery, and I was like, man, there's not a lot. I I mean, just based on how they're recruiting, I I would take a flyer on the Ducks on that because I started going through and saying, okay, you know, Texas A&M, Jimbo's won a national title. I think he'll recruit well, but I'm not sure. I mean, he's still got to get out of the SEC West. I don't know if that's... If that's as as realistic, you know, Wisconsin is one, but I thought after last year, I'm not as sold, you know, the way last year played out. Um, You know, there's Mississippi State for much the same. I'm a believer in Joe Moorhead, but much like Texas A&M, I just don't see them winning a title. Just for just for a little bit of uh, background here. So by doing what he did and starting it in 65, he that took away a few programs that did win AP national titles including Texas A&M, before 1965. I'm going to throw out a few others. You can tell wait, me. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean it took away? He's saying he wants to start the consideration in 65. Texas A&M right. does, would not be a first-time national champion if they won the national championship. They won one in 1939. No, I get that. I get that. No, yeah. Texas A&M is in consideration for this argument. Yes, yeah, so they are in consideration, but I just want to M- throw Minnesota out... A- is in consideration for this argument. Yes, Minnesota. So this, yes. so the programs that won national titles before right. 1965 yeah. include Minnesota, TCU, Army, 
uh, Michigan State, Maryland, and I know this is going to be your answer. No, I'm just kidding. Syracuse. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Oregon. I mean, I I, I kick can kick the tires on like five or six of these schools. Oregon to me is the one just because of the way they're recruiting, and I think the moment some of the momentum they have there. And uh, my answer would be A and M because they are a national championship type program in every way behind the scenes. You couldn't ask for better facilities, more investment, more fan support, and of course now. They've got a coach who's done it before, so that would be my answer. Now, he asked if there's anybody beyond those two, and I have to say I'm struggling to think of an obvious program that would become a first-time national champion. I mean, I guess if we throw out that 1938 TCU national title, might TCU enter the equation? It's, you know, look, he's a, he's a great coach. I just don't know if they're going to if they would get enough players there to do that. Okay, what about Wisconsin? Look, the same thing. Look, I would make the case with a, a couple of these schools that, you know, I would put UCLA in the same. Are they going to get enough players to do it? I don't question the leadership they have. I, I just question they have enough players to win a title to do that. I mean, again, and I'm not saying Oregon or Texas. I Like, if, if you ask me, do I think they're going to win a national title? I would say probably not. But just to, for the sake of this question, I, I mean, I'm taking a flyer on the Ducks because of, not to no pun intended, just because of I think they are recruiting to a point where they might have a shot. To, well, I mean, to in, in fairness, through. right? This is a program that has played in two national title games this decade that couldn't have come much closer yes. the first time. So this is not exactly a out of nowhere uh, choice. They've shown they can get right to the doorstep. Can uh, I? Can, can I? Can they just finish the job? <laughs> that that's completely I don't say off the grid, but it's in a different place. Just give me a percent chance. I, w- I want to see if there's even more than a 1% chance of this. Dana Holgerson at Houston. I think they would have to be pulled up to the Power Five. I, you cannot, based on what we've seen so far, you can't even make the playoff, much less win the national championship from the American Conference. Same thing with UCF. But if like the Big 12 were to suddenly knight Houston tomorrow with Dana Holgerson as their coach, yeah, I'd give that a more than 1% chance. What about Dana's last school? What about West Virginia? I'm a big Neil Brown guy, but I just, again, this fits into the category of I think it's too big of a step up from there. West Virginia played for a national championship in 1988. Yeah, look, when Rich Rod had it going, they were a dangerous team. Even the year that Dana's team just blew Clemson off the field, you know, they had a lot of firepower. I just didn't think they had enough players on the defensive side of the ball to win a national uh, I've got I've got a good one. Louisville. They have definitely ascended at times and then crashed and burned afterward, but ascended to to, you know, pretty pretty um, nationally I want to say elite, but prominent like, prominent top 10 status. So we both are we both like Scott Satterfield. Are you going to change your answer Louisville for for Texas A&M? No, just because Texas A&M, like I said, I mean, I don't know why it hasn't happened since 1939, but in terms of just if you were to like take the names off the off the nameplates and just say who is built, which programs are best built to compete for national championships, I mean, they would be very high on the list. Who is the head coach out there who, if you took him off the program he's at now and stuck him at... One of these other schools that we're talking about that fits into this kind of 
middle tier of just underneath the teams that have won it, you'd say, okay, I think that guy would win a national title. You know, it's funny. This is a question that comes up time and again in my mailbag. If you took Nick Saban and put him on such and such, well, we kind of saw that, right? Nick Saban was the coach of Michigan State. He did not turn them into a national championship program. And Michigan uh, State was not is not Kansas football either. Right. So I don't think it works that way. You know, I think I think with those guys, if you put if you put Nick Saban in charge of Louisville, he would elevate that program quite a bit. Would he win the national title? Debatable. Uh, you know, we're seeing something like that. Names Iowa, by the way. You know, they they were they were certainly decent under Paul Rhodes at times. But what Matt Campbell's done there, winning top ten games, I think it's what it was three and one in the last couple of years. That's pretty noteworthy. It is, but I do think Iowa State still has a ceiling. Now, if you put Matt Campbell, that's at, my that's my answer. That's your answer. If you put Matt Campbell, no, what, well, I'm sorry. If you put Matt Campbell somewhere else, they would win a national title. Well, I'm not saying, yeah, no, like if you put him at Georgia, I think they would have a, a good chance to win a national title. I think they have a good chance to win, a decent chance to win one now. I mean, that's what it comes down to. There's a pretty finite amount of schools that have a chance, period, no matter who the coach is. The list of options here for first-time national champ, that's why we're struggling, right? We yeah. don't think there are, you know, 40 programs out there that could, be, that could, with the right circumstances, become a first-time national champion. I think it's more closer to, like, 15. So just the last one before we move on. Mike Leach won 11 games last year at Washington State. Do you think Washington State will have any chance to, to be one of those teams? No. Okay. I think you, I mean, I've said it before. I don't know that people love hearing it. It came up with Wisconsin. In this system, I think it, now I have to say something. My answer might have been different in the BCS, where it was top two and they got voted into the game. So, I mean, there was a year where if, if, a, if they hadn't lost to Nevada and a couple dominoes had fallen, Boise State would have been voted into the BCS championship game. But in four-team playoff with a committee, that's not going to happen. And then even if somebody like that does make it in there, they then have to win two back-to-back games against a school like Alabama that has you know, a future NFL roster. That's, that's the problem. A similar style question. This one is from Brian in Buford, Georgia. Stumbrus, which team has yet to make, that has yet to make the college level playoff do you think has the best chance to make the field in 2019? All right, Stu, and thank you, for Brian, for doing this. He has listed the 10 schools that have that are disqualified from this question because they've already made it. That is, of course, Alabama, Clemson, FSU, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Oregon, Michigan State, Notre Dame, and Washington. So who from that who is not on that list, who you think has the best chance to make it in 2019? It's one of two schools who play each other. Uh, you're going to the same place I was going to go. The second week of the season, LSU or Texas. And I'm going to say Texas just because they don't have to play Alabama in early November. Jeez, it's really kind of disgusting to me when I start to <laughs> think the same things you think. And it's just like the rationale is almost the same. Well, we could, we, if you want, we could, we could start preparing for the podcast as if it's first take. And just be like, okay, who's going to take the opposite side of this one? And we'll argue about it. I mean, that's literally the exact same rationale I had taken on it. And the same disqualifier. You know, I think LSU is probably probably has more talent, but they have a tougher road than than uh, than Texas does. And um, te- Texas has to replace a bunch of guys on defense. But I think if they win that game, and that's a home game for them against LSU, the question I would have coming off that is: Do you think a a twelve and one Texas has a good chance of getting the playoff? 
I would think they would. I would think. I mean, I, I, everybody likes to throw that out before the season. You don't know who they're going to be going up against. Any 12-1 and Power 5 champ is going to be have an excellent chance. I mean, unless, how many, I don't think any 12-1 and Power 5 champ has been left out so far. Well, especially when, you know, they're, they're non-conference. They have a heavyweight team on their non-conference. Yeah. Now it's at home, but it's not like they have a bunch of duds. I mean, look, even Alabama, as, as, as great as they are, you look at their non-conference schedule, and they're, you know, they're playing Duke as probably their toughest out-of-conference game. I mean, somebody asked me in, in my written mailbag this week, do you think if Oregon beats Auburn in week one and goes 12-1, and one, they would make the playoff, or would they have to go undefeated because they're in the Pac-12? And it's like... First of all, there have been two Pac-12 playoff teams with one loss, and it's not like the committee has shown, even if they thought the Pac-12 was total garbage, they've not shown any uh, instinct yet that they would leave out that team uh, to take a two-loss team instead. So, But if you want me to throw out a less obvious, okay, if you want me to be a little bit different than, than those obvious teams, like I just said, you know, despite all the criticism of the Pac-12 list so far, or recently, it is Highly possible for a 12 and one Pac-12 champ to make the playoff. Could that team this year, possibly that hasn't made it yet, possibly be Utah? That was not the direction you were going in. I like to see it. Um, well, Washington's but, already made it. Oregon's already made it. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that's Stanford. I don't consider to be a a playoff contender this year. And I would not consider USC in the state they're in to no. be that. So, I don't know. Look, if they can keep Tyler Huntley healthy. Um, Kyle Whittingham, when I saw him this offseason, thinks this is the best defensive line he's ever had, which is actually saying quite a bit because they've had some really fierce defensive lines. They have some firepower. I don't know. They gotta, I think it's hard. I, I think we respect Utah. I think it's hard to go all in on them like that. It is hard to go all in on them because they've yet to finish the deal. You know, they've had several seasons here recently where, you know, remember the year they destroyed Oregon and kind of like, I feel like that was the beginning of the end for Mark Helfrich, even though he didn't get fired till the next year, when Utah went into or- went into Eugene, where to that point Oregon had been invincible recently, and beat them like sixty-two to, I don't remember the score. There was definitely a, it was definitely in the sixties for Utah, and then they they shot up really high in the rankings, and then they fell apart at the end of the season, and that happens every year. Even last year they did make the Pac-12 title game, but they had a lot of injuries, and they ended up, uh, you know, in the Holiday Bowl finishing nine and five. So. Is that right? Yeah. So it is. It's hard to say, oh, yeah, I'm all in on the Utes without having actually seen them finish the deal yet. Also, non-conference schedule, BYU, NIU, Idaho State. You know, obviously, BYU has been all over the map lately. NIU is usually a respectable uh, mid-major new team. Co- new, new coaching coach. staff at NIU. So at Utah. If things break, yeah, if things break the wrong way there, that could, they could end up with a not impressive non-conference schedule. To me, the toughest game for them is early early November. They got to go to Husky Stadium and they play Washington. Now that we did that game last year on the Pac-12 title game, I mean it was it was a, a seven to three game. It wasn't like I mean, both teams were really tough on defense, and that was that. I mean that's a tough road game for them, though. Okay, so the next one, Michael Ruschenberg. Uh, this is right up the alley of what you were just talking about, Bruce. New listener here. Thank you, Michael, for coming on. I uh, love the Coach Campbell and Holly Rowe interviews. I'm currently an Iowa State student and have a couple questions about the Cyclones. Will Matt Campbell and Iowa State be in Dallas competing for a Big 12 championship in the near future? And can he turn Iowa State into a consistent eight-win team? I think he can. I mean, I, I think his 
the recruiting is only going to get better and better there as people get used to the success they're having. I think he's got a quarterback there in Brock Purdy, who was a great find for Iowa State last year as a true freshman, played really well. He's just going to keep getting better. I would make the case that they might be the third best team in the conference right now behind Texas and OU. I'm not sure that there's anybody I have more confidence in right now in the league than them. I mean, Oklahoma State fans might not like to hear that. TCU fans might not like to hear that, but I don't know. You know, am I wrong to say that? That's that's how I feel going into this season. You know, I don't know if over the next three to five years if they can maintain that because obviously, you know, Mike Gundy is is he had a bad year last year, but he's been a ten game, ten win kind of coach at Oklahoma State, and we'll see. You know, there's a bunch of new coaches in the Big Twelve. And we'll see what Neil Brown can get going at West Virginia, what uh, Matt Wells can get going at Texas Tech. But you know, Mac, it's interesting. Matt Campbell is kind of a hot. It is a hot coach right now who gets a lot of acclaim. Uh, you mentioned the top ten upsets, but I think we're all just assuming that they can keep this get even better. I mean, at the end of the day, they've gone eight and five. So to his question, that can he be a consistent eight win team? They're kind of already there, but can they be a ten win team on a regular basis? We'll see. You know, it's it's a tough place to do that. It is, but look, what's the hardest piece to get is the quarterback. It sounds like they got it, and this kid's going to be there at least two more years. And that's a good building block for for them. One of their best players is a true freshman linebacker they had last year. I mean, those like the pieces are starting to, to line up for them to really get to build off of where you know. Look, they were an eight. I think the question is not just can he turn them into a consistent eight win team. It's like you said. Can they go from being a fringe top 25 team to a top 10 team? And uh, uh, look, Kirk Ferentz has done a terrific job over the years at Iowa, but they have not consistently been a top 10 team either. You know, occasionally they can get in there, but that's really hard to do. It feels a little like, remember when BC was was better and it felt like, you know, this went back to, uh, you know, when they had Matt Ryan, where they would hang around the top 25 and then maybe the team would be built for that one year where they'd make a run and they'd be a top 10 team. That's what I think the aspiration should be at, at you know, places like this where, you know, they're more in, more incumbent to rely on development than uh, some of the other programs we mentioned earlier. All right, Stu, this question from Dave K. Bruce and Stu, the news seems to have come out a few weeks ago, so I'm surprised you guys have not yet discussed the new bowl agreements for the major conferences. Who do you guys think are the winners and losers as far as the conferences go? Also, are there any changes to these agreements more under the surface? For example, the changes of several years ago with guaranteed tickets being decreased and the assurances that teams will not go to the same bowl too often. P.S. Do you guys plan to keep the podcast distribution as is or to move to the Athletics new podcast app? Thanks, as always, for your year-round great work. Thank you, Dave. Well, to answer, the, yeah, to answer the second part real quick, yes, the Athletic does have a fantastic uh, podcast component to the app now. And there will be a very robust college football lineup come the season. But regardless of what happens there, the Audible no plans for it to not be available on all the on Apple and all the places you get it now. The he so what he's referring to is um, I don't some of them have been made official, some of them haven't, but basically all the conferences um, were coming to the end of a six year cycle that you know almost all of the non uh, New Year's Six Bowls were on six year contracts. So there's going to be a little bit of shuffling of the deck starting in 2020. 
And I think the most notable bowl development in general is that the Vegas Bowl, when it moves into the new NFL stadium, is going to become a much bigger deal. It's going to be going to move up the Pac-12's pecking order, and it's going to be the other side of it, instead of being the Mountain West, is going to be shared between uh, the SEC and the Big Ten. So this may become as a bit of a surprise, but uh, my answer is who, which conference fared the best? Uh, I think it was Pac-12, uh, which has always had kind of a weaker bowl lineup than the other uh, Power Five conferences just because of geography. You know, they're just not near the Outback Bowl and the, Hol- and the Citrus Bowl and all those. But like I said, the Vegas Bowl, which was, you know, has traditionally been a place where like a seven and five team goes, becomes much more appealing. There also is a new bowl coming in the new NFL stadium in LA. That's basically become swaps with the Vegas Bowl. They'll be playing a Mountain West team there. And I just think that's a, you know, obviously a great destination, a logical destination for Pac-12 fans. Just show how much is upgraded. I can remember when the Holiday Bowl had the uh, number two pick in the Pac-12. It is now going to be the fifth, where the fifth pick goes. And the Sun Bowl, which has actually been fairly high in their lineup for years, is now down to being the number seven bowl. So, uh, you know, we could talk about Big Ten and SEC, but I think that's a pretty nice upgrade for the Pac-12. Okay, let's try this next question. And this is from Matt McCall in Greenville, South Carolina. Guys, love the pod. Rarely write in on these things, but this one was pretty egregious. Uh Uh-oh, I don't like the way this sounds, too. (laughs) Referencing the potential players to be on the all-decade team, you left off the most obvious one, I would argue. The most likely current player to not be on an all-decade, but climb to the top ranks of the top 50 all-time list you guys talked about a year or two ago. Trevor Lawrence, come on. I'm hoping the omission was, omission was because it was too obvious or somehow disqualified by the guy's question. But since he mentioned Tua, I don't know how the next thought isn't the guy that just outplayed Tua and crushed his quote-unquote greatest team ever by four touchdowns. Stu, defend yourself. He's already ready to anoint, after one season, he's already ready to anoint him as one of the 50 all-time greatest players. The reason it, I, he didn't, it didn't really occur to me just because at the end of the decade, he'll have only played two seasons. So now if he wins another national title and is a two-time national champion quarterback in his first two seasons, obviously that would be pretty special. I guess this. I guess the best way to approach this is first to, for us to each say, who would be the, our quarterback on the all-decade team right now? To, to figure out if Trevor Lawrence can supplant him. I have one of two choices right now. The one, and this is the only one that stinks for me, is just because um, I want to say Marcus Mariota, but he didn't win a national title. But he had enough. He had an amazing uh, career. Yeah. No, I get it. I mean, to me. Like, statistically, he put up ridiculous numbers. He had them, you know, at, in the national title game. I mean, to me, he's a, a strong, strong argument. The other one, though, that I, you know, probably need to go with, we can count Auburn's national title in this decade, correct? I knew you were going here. Well, of course. I mean, 2010 counts. It's in this decade. He's the, you know, put a program on his back. It's Cam. I mean, this is the same debate we've gotten into a million times. He had the most dominant season, but you're talking about an all-decade team, and you want to put on a guy who played one season. All right, so we're going to end up arguing about my guy Cam against your guy Jameis. Is that what this comes down to? Jameis, no. My, <laughs> I, my first instinct was also Marcus Mariota, but I acknowledge that there's a, there's a bit of a missing piece there. 
I think my all-decade quarterback right now would be Baker Mayfield. He did not win a national title, but he took his team to the playoff twice. He won a Heisman. He was a Heisman finalist, I believe, two other seasons. And he broke the all-time... He actually broke Mariota's pass efficiency record that then Kyler Murray broke the next year. So uh, so could Trevor Lawrence, if he wins a national title this season, and or the Heisman or both, supplant Baker Mayfield on that list? Uh, What do you think? I think with I think recency bias would probably cause people to do that, but if we're putting them up, I mean I guess it depends on do the do guys have to win a national championship to be considered the quarterback of the all decade team? You know, if that had been the previous decade, then you'd be saying Matt Mock is a candidate for uh, Craig no, Prenzel no, is a candidate no, for all decade no, team. No, no, I'm saying like if national title is the end all be all, then those guys would be eligible basically, like we were talking about with the Hall of Fame. And um, let's think of somebody really good who didn't win a national title. Um, Kellen Moore. Kellen Moore would not be eligible. Look, I mean, I, you made a good argument right there. You know, it's funny. We did this top 50 players before Baker really, really went off. You know, he was yeah. a college player at that point. And that may be something we have to revisit. Let me ask you this, because you were high on him before I remember the argument. Who do you think had a better college career? Baker Mayfield or Tim Tebow? And by the way, Tim Tebow, I'm pretty sure when we did our, at SI, when we did our all-decade team, last decade, Tebow was the quarterback, I think. Because he, at that point, had won two national titles, a Heisman, and he was a three-time Heisman finalist as well. Who had a better career? You said Baker Mayfield or Tebow? Yeah. I think I got to say Tebow because of the two rings. So I guess I am emphasizing national title. Hmm. All right, I'm going to take Baker on that. But Although okay. Tebow's first year, the year he won the Heisman, they went nine and four. Baker never had a nine and four type of season. Yeah, I think um, you're you right. I, I changed my answer. Baker okay. Mayfield. You so know, yes, he's that, the all-decade quarterback. One name that's an that's an interesting name to add into the all-decade question, and it's a guy who didn't win a Heisman, but he probably would have if we had re, redone the Heisman vote till after the national title game, and that would be Deshaun Watson. Mm-hmm. But you would still go. If you ranked your all-decade quarterbacks, give me your top three. Okay, again, I'm not putting Cam Newton on there because it was only one season. Sorry. Oh, you, man. No, that's such, <laughs> that is really, like, I don't, I, what have you, seriously, what have you got against Cam Newton? Nothing. Again, I still to this day think that that's the most dominant single season we've seen from a quarterback. I know Texas fans will point to Vince Young, but Vince Young, you know, came on to a program that was at that point winning uh, 10, 11 games every year. You know, certainly. So you're disqualifying him just because of the one year? Solely because if you're talking about career achievement, it's hard for me to take a guy who played one season ahead of guys like Baker, who he was a four-year starter if you count Texas Tech. You know, he, right. he's, and when you should count towards yeah, Texas Tech. Yeah, and just at Oklahoma alone. He, okay, so you have Baker. He let, remember, he won three straight Big 12 titles. Two playoffs in there. I, I get it. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna crap on Baker now. So he would be um, one. Mariota would be two. Um, is Jameis three for you? He's definitely in the running. So is Lamar Jackson. I'm trying to think if I'm forgetting somebody from earlier in the decade. Again, Deshaun Watson's in there. Deshaun Watson's definitely in the mix. Deshaun didn't win the Heisman. That kind of hurts him. Even though, like you said, he probably would have won it if there was a, a revote. I think number three for me would be Lamar Jackson. An incredible, incredible two-year run. Yeah. So you take Lamar over over Jameis Winston. 
But Jameis was a two-year guy. No, I'm not, well, I'm not arguing. No, I'm Jameis. thinking I'm it out in my head. That's a tough one. How would you lean? I go. I would go Cam one, Mariota two, Baker three. Okay. So you're. Oh, so you're keeping Mariota ahead of Baker. You. I know what. I'm on the fence on that one, but. Yeah, I mean, look. In one in one regard, they neither one won a national title, so I mean that's the part. I mean, to me, yeah, I just I just keep getting know. back to three straight Big Twelve titles, two playoff playoff runs. In terms of the Jameis Lamar Jackson thing, that has it's a really interesting comparison. They're so different. Jameis won the national title, had a you know almost went undefeated. You know, he did go undefeated two regular seasons in a row. Played in the playoff the second year. But I just remember that second season, him not being very good, throwing lots of interceptions. No, I, I get and, it. I get it. Look, yeah. there's another name we are we are not talking about, and I don't know what to do with him. But college stats wise, were ridiculous, and he did it against big big time competition. Where do you, what do you do with Johnny Manziel? Oh. No, Johnny. Oh Manziel. yeah, Johnny Manziel should be in the mix. How did we forget him? Uh, we didn't. We did not forget him. It's just he was right. Like. For me, he would be probably the fourth guy. Kyler falls into the category of what you were saying, where it was like one it was one great year. And to me, I know statistical one thing, but it wasn't like what Cam did. So if I put Johnny Mans, because we're talking about with Jameis and Lamar Jackson, I'm talking about two guys that only played two seasons. And so same with Johnny Football. You know, it's tough because I'm Johnny like, Football. He had such a, a to yeah, he his had, only top five finish in the past half century. OK, I'm, I'm re-voting. Here we go. One Baker, two Mariota, three Johnny Manziel. So who did you bump off? Who was in your third spot before? It was like a tie between Winston and uh, and uh, Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson. Mm, okay. Okay. So much of it is just like kind of intangible too. Like you remember that 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 run that Johnny had as being like you know really special. I kind of feel the same way about Mariota. He had the stats too, but. At the time, and I know Baker Mayfield would go and break his record and, and, and such and such, but like at the time, we had not seen a quarterback be so ridiculously accurate. I still more right. go back and look at his stats and go, did that really happen? Yeah. By the way, uh, to, to Matt McCall's uh, original point, I for some reason, I did not think we were allowed to put Trevor in the discussion. I don't know why, why I thought that in the conversation. Because he, you know, he's right. He's an obvious choice, and I think... What he's saying, you know, it's he's not there yet. But I would be surprised if after the time Trevor Lawrence leaves the state of South Carolina to go to the NFL, which I'm guessing will happen in two years, um, that he will not leave as one of these guys who is a lock to be in the top 50 all time. By the way, now that we've gone through this exercise and I realize that my all of my candidates for third choice were two-year players, then obviously if he has a spectacular season this year, he would he would... Trump, he would probably bump those guys, if, especially if he won a national championship. But I still don't think he would supplant uh, Mayfield because Mayfield or, was a f- three-slash-four-year guy. Or Cam, because Cam did it without anybody great around him. You and Cam, I mean, have you ever talked to him about your man crush you have on him? Like, No, if, if I'm not mistaken, I may not have seen Cam Newton since... Uh, the documentary. That might be it, actually. I don't know. It's not like I have like any, any, uh, any personal relationship with him. Do you remember? I know I'm a bigger SNL fan than you are, but do you remember the Chris Farley show? The Chris Farley show. I don't. I remember Chris Farley. I didn't remember. I, I don't remember his. Show Everything Chris Farley did was was spectacular. But he had a sketch called the Chris Farley show where he 
would inter- he was a talk show host who would interview celebrity guests, you know, usually the host or the musical act. I remember Paul McCartney being one of them. And he would be like real confident and blah, blah. And then as soon as they got to actually talking to the guest, he would become really nervous and stammer. And I, his question would end up being, why are you so awesome? That's why I'm picturing you and Cam Newton. Okay, I got a question. Okay, Cam, great to talk to you today. Bruce Feldman, uh, question for you. Why are you so awesome? I think the question should be, Stu, how did you get to be so awesome? How did you get to be so so awesome? (laughs) Like, seriously, dude, that season at Auburn, man, like, you had nothing around you. How on earth did you do that? I know. I know. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. I mean, really, this time of year, your guys' emails are our podcast. So send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. Come on, get over here. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.